The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. First Republic Bank has become the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Another Bay Area bank goes down. We're back with some breaking news this morning. First Republic Bank has been taken over by federal regulators and sold to J.P. Morgan Chase. As America's banking crisis flares up again, in a statement this morning, J.P. Morgan Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. We're back few weeks later than expected, but just in time to talk about the collapse of First Republic, the fourth US bank to hit the rails since we went off air at the end of January. Why are these smaller lenders under pressure? And if they stop lending, is that going to be enough to tank the economy? I found myself asking these questions in Los Angeles this week at the Milken Institute's big annual conference. And it's not a bad place to get expert answers. Some of the biggest names in U.S. finance were here, along with some senior U.S. politicians and the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Gorgieva. I'll play you my chat with her and with Milken's chief economist, William Lee, in a few minutes. But with the best will in the world, these movers and shakers aren't going to be able to tell you how it feels to be at the sharp end of this slow-moving U.S. credit crunch. For that, we asked Bloomberg's Mike Sasso, to go to Florida. Pickleball has exploded in popularity across the country. Pickleball, you guys are playing. Everybody's playing it now. Pickleball popularity has exploded with an estimated more than 4.8 million players nationwide. If a pickleball business is having trouble getting a loan these days, then you know the credit crunch sweeping the U.S. must be serious. In Nocatee, Florida, a suburb in the fast-growing Jacksonville area, Lauren Garvey and her husband are eager to open a new bar and grill with courts for pickleball, the popular paddle sport that's kind of like tennis for the everyman. They want to combine it with a restaurant, either by creating their own spot or buying a franchise of chicken and pickle, where you can gobble down some wings with a beer, then hit the courts. When I started noticing pickleball was when, you know, maybe five, seven years back when my grandmother was in her retirement community and she was playing pickleball and she was raving about it. And it you know, sounded like such a funny term until we started noticing more and more people playing it in, in our community in Nakti. And there were multiple pickleball courts and they're constantly full in the mornings. Um, when I take walks past there, I'll see people playing pickleball you know, as early as 7 a.m. And, and they're there until the sun goes down. So we just realized what kind of opportunity was there. But like so many others lately, the Garvey's entrepreneurial dreams are a little more remote than they were just a few weeks ago. Getting a $2.5 million loan from their bank once looked all but certain. But when the best rate they could get was around 9% or 10%, the Garvey's put the brakes on. You know, it got to that point where when we were told that the interest rates were going to be at 10 plus percent, we realized that's just higher than what we could afford. 
or what made sense. And there's a high probability that, you know, they wouldn't approve the, the concept or the loan anyway. And obviously it doesn't support our, our financial model. We, you know, it would make it difficult for us to even break even, let alone make money anytime soon. So, you know, we had to cut that off. expected over the weekend as well. Let's get a little bit more insight on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. This is rapid how quickly this bank went into total collapse. It was just a couple of days and it happened in the middle. The banking turmoil that sunk Silicon Valley Bank and rattled markets worldwide so far hasn't led to the wholesale crisis that some feared. Yet it's causing banks and other lenders to think harder about making loans. And it's reducing the size of the loans they do make. This credit crunch is more than a little worrying for the world's biggest economy, especially as the U.S. Federal Reserve met this week and raised interest rates for their 10th and possibly final time of the current cycle. Those higher borrowing costs played a role in stoking today's banking trouble. A year ago, the U.S. Central Bank launched an aggressive campaign to squelch the worst inflation America had seen in 40 years. Suddenly, new car loans that once had low 4.4% interest rates now carry burdensome 7% rates. And for America's mom-and-pop shops, the average loan backed by the U.S. Small Business Administration has nearly doubled to more than 11% interest. It was too much to stomach for the Garveys. Yeah, we kind of got to the point where we just realized it was too high for us. Only about 20% of the money in the United States is in currency and coin. The other 80% is checkbook money. And that checkbook money is in the form of deposits in our commercial banking system. Americans have generally parked their money in banks for a long time without moving it. But they started to withdraw when the Fed began raising rates last year. When SVB's troubles made headlines in March, and First Republic and Signature Bank soon followed, depositors got spooked and yanked their cash out, causing all three to fail. And as those deposits flow out of the bank, that severely cuts down on their ability to make new loans. Here's Ben Johnston of Capitus, a lender to small businesses. And in fact, many cases, these banks are needing to shed assets and curtail lending in the future in order to make sure that they can supply that outflow of deposits. Eventually, bank regulators and a coalition of large banks stepped in to quell the crisis. But many see troubling signs for the bank loans and the companies that depend on them. Just this week, J.P. Morgan agreed to acquire First Republic Bank after it was seized by authorities. John Tuhig works for the investment bank Raymond James Financial, overseeing a unit that packages up loans and trades them. He informally surveyed about 200 regional banks recently and found that about a quarter had toughened their lending standards after SVB's collapse. They're charging higher rates. So that, again, that comes back to liquidity, right? Their cost of funds is going up. Uh, it's not necessarily credit, but I mean, if they have to do a borrowing or have to do a CD special, their borrowing costs are four or 5% today. 
they have to charge something north of that, right? Mm-hmm. But you're starting to see lending slow because of those higher rates. Meantime, the amount of corporate debt trading at distress levels has soared by 28% since SVB collapsed in March. And bankruptcies are climbing, especially among small firms. With money harder to get at traditional banks, more firms likely will turn to high-interest alternative lenders like Capitus. The New York-based company offers loans and other forms of credit with interest rates starting in the teens and going up from there. Despite its pricier loans, the company saw loan applications spike to their highest level ever in March. Here's Chief Operating Officer Ben Johnston again. And we expect that volume to you know, continue to be at, at quite high levels for the foreseeable future. Back in Florida, the Garveys are going to wait out the high interest rates and credit crunch, hopefully returning to their pickleball grill and bar concept when things settle down. No doubt that it would be profitable and that the demand is there and it's something that we would love to pursue, you know, down the line, especially if the interest rates come down. It's not going to come off of our radar. We're going to continue to proactively pursue it. There's just so much demand for it, especially in this area. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So we're sitting in a crowded hall at the Milken Institute's big annual shindig in uh, in LA at the, the kind of charmingly old-fashioned uh, Beverly Hilton. Um, and I'm delighted uh, to be joined by William Lee, who's the Milken Institute's chief economist um, and often helps us explain what's going on in the global economy. So I appreciate, William. Well, um, I've had the privilege of being on uh, Bloomberg um, Radio in, in Asia. Uh, so I visit almost every Bloomberg office uh, in places where I've worked uh, my entire professional life. And somehow we've not had you on Stephanomics, so I'm glad we finally <laughs> resolved that problem. I um, want to talk to you about lots of things, but let's uh, get into the all this talk of credit crunch. Right. And, you know, obviously this conference this week began with... Uh, the resolution of the First Republic situation, JP Morgan buying this bank. Um, we've had four US banks fail in the last few years, few months, and not all of them big, um, but certainly raising questions about mistakes being made um, in their business model, but also the impact of this big increase in interest rates that we've had um, in the US. So I guess I should ask you, how concerned are you by the state of the U.S. banking system, which, of course, lends to a lot of households and a lot of companies? And if they can't lend, then the economy might be affected. You know, when you bump into anybody here at Milken as an icebreaker, they always ask you, in fact, they've been asking me all morning, uh, 
What do you think of happened in the First Republic? Uh, is this uh, the start of something really big in the banking system? Will the banking system be in trouble? And I think if, if you're given an answer of the sort that says, oh, gee, the credit crunch might lead to a recession, they shake your hand and they leave. <laughs> <laughs> because they know uh, the professionals here are, are capital markets people. They know that corporate America raises most of its money through debt and equity. And bank lending right now has become much less important source of capital for major corporations. Where banks are still very important would be among the smaller and medium-sized businesses. And in certain sectors, like real estate, there the, the, the local banks, the small and medium-sized regional banks are incredibly important in supplying money to these particular businesses. So if indeed there were a banking crunch, credit crunch and there was a banking crisis that prevented banks from lending, you'll see the impact mainly in those areas. Now, when I say it's only 11% of total corporate borrowing, you think, oh my God, that's such a small number. Why are we so worried about it? Well, small businesses account for the bulk of the employment and, and the real estate market is absolutely vital to a lot of people because let's face it, uh, we don't want to go through 2008 again. But as, a, as far as tanking the entire US economy is concerned, that's unlikely to happen unless we really have a very severe banking crisis that spreads into the capital markets and prevents companies from raising money there. So what we're basically saying is you know, a mom and pop store or a small business um, can't go and issue debt, debt. issue a bond right. for mom and pop um, they have to go to their local bank. And so whether or not that bank is feeling able to lend and how tough the you know, requirements that are um, is going to make a difference on whether or not they can get that loan. So, But I guess if you're the Fed, that's kind of why you're raising interest rates, right? You exactly. Uh, one of the, th the reasons why the Fed is so worried about the efficacy and the, uh, the power of monetary policy these days is that they, they've been raising rates really almost at an unprecedented rate uh, from zero to now near 5%, and they still see the economy chugging along fairly strongly. And, the, and more importantly, the unemployment rate is still at 3.5%. Uh, so they're asking themselves, is, has the transmission to monetary policy changed? It's, somehow has it become less powerful? Well, it, it, it may have, but certainly the indicator they want to see uh, change is consumer spending easing off. And we heard in today's session, um, Jane Fraser, the, the head of Citibank, say the top two quintiles of, of people still have a lot of spending power. And it really struck me to say, yeah, you're right. It's the top two quintiles. But what about the rest of the population? They're going paycheck to paycheck. They're, they're using up their credit cards. Uh, so we have two Americas. Uh, an America where the very rich are comfortably spending and going on vacation and filling up all the airplanes going to Europe. But we have the bulk of the U.S. population still suffering from not having enough money to meet their daily needs because prices keep going up faster than their, than their income. So when the Fed wants to ease inflation, the first thing they want to do is start to get the economy to slow down so that people don't demand as much goods and services uh, and so that the price pressures are eased off. And I think that that is starting to work now. Uh, in the latest GDP numbers, we're starting to see income, gross domestic income, has actually turned down. And that's a good sign that maybe we will have something that will restrain the economy. And if the banks start to ease off on lending to specifically to businesses that hire a lot of people, more people will get frightened that, my God, my job really is at risk. 
maybe I shouldn't be going on that vacation. I can maybe delay it till next year. It's, yeah, it's an uncomfortable conversation, though, isn't it? Because we tend to we talk about higher interest rates in the abstract, and uh, maybe we encourage the idea that it's you know going to just at the edges make people cut their spending. And you talk about holidays. Some people think of a holiday as a pretty essential item <laughs> in their basket, uh, but. Uh, you know, the uncomfortable truth is you are, it, the whole point of the policy is to make it harder for people to get a loan. Right. So I'd rather have the money in my pocket now rather than spending it and then worry that I will get laid off for six months after I come back from my vacation. So I think those are the, 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 the social issues that I think the Fed is well aware of. But there is really only one policy instrument they have to control inflation, and that's by raising interest rates. I guess the only upside for people who don't like the sound of working Americans being hurt is that it's pretty tough for banks in the US at the moment for lots of reasons. But this increase in interest rates actually has turned out to be a bit of a problem for them. You know, normally they can make a lot of money from having a big gap between what you can get in a savings account and what they're lending out for. But it hasn't quite worked out like that. Well, Stephanie, I'm not sympathetic. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My former boss, Jane uh, Fraser at Citi, is doing quite well because they, they have a very diversified business model. So, so those banks that, that are able to manage the businesses and manage their risks are doing quite well. What we've seen is that banks that go on the fringes and into fringe markets, like trying to service the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, or going to really high net worth people and saying, come do business with me, and offering very, very specialized services to them, those business models uh, that, are, that are less diversified are also more risky. And what we've discovered is that as interest rates went up, they could no longer fund these special services as they did before with cheap money. And once funding became expensive, suddenly their customers noticed, oh, gee, I can get better services or better returns someplace else. And guess what rich people do? They really move their money fast when they see higher returns. Now, Silicon Valley also operated with no chief risk officer for nine months. Um, they, they, They didn't have the kind of corporate governance that held them accountable for making management mistakes. Similarly, the First Republic also was subject to not enough corporate governance that said, hey, you should diversify your business model. So the fact that individual banks like that that are not well run failed is a good thing. What we actually do have, which we haven't talked about enough, is a crisis in supervision. Uh, Not regulation, but supervision. Regulation is, for, for everyone out there, is having a lot of bunch of rules. And, and, and having very stiff rules or less stiff rules apply to various banks. But a supervisor is supposed to come in and actually say, hey, you're not following the rules. And, and, and Vice Chairman Barr testified, we gave these banks three notices saying, you gotta correct what you're doing. That's like saying when I, when I was in, in grade school, my teacher said, this is gonna go on your permanent record if you don't correct yourself. Well, these guys just said, well, so what? <laughs> now, now, I, I, from where you come from, the Bank of England, the, the worst fear of every banker is to be invited to tea at the Bank of England. Back in the day, anyway. I'm not sure. <laughs> not just because of the quality of the tea, we should say. Well, that could be too. Uh-huh. Um, but, but, but here, the supervisors allow these banks to continue. And that was the sin that, that really cannot be forgiven. And the fact that the Fed own internal review said, oh, gee, you know, this era of deregulation from Trump, uh, has caused our supervisory staff to feel that they really shouldn't be enforcing regulations? I'm sorry. That is not uh, a reasonable excuse for supervisors pulling down their jobs. But there is something that is not specific to those banks that you talked about, or even the bad supervision, 
um, which we saw in these crises <coughs> or these failures of these banks. You know, there's, as you mentioned, the sort of digital bank run that can happen overnight, uh, billions of dollars in 24 hours going out of Silicon Valley Bank, for example, um, which feels like a game changer. Um, but also uh, now a pretty large gap between where short-term interest rates are and still where most banks are, you know, off, what are off, offering in terms of savings rates. Now, if you look at a bank, that is one of the main ways they make money. By having that gap and hoping that kind of people won't notice or they talk about the deposits being sticky, you know, it does seem to be relevant to every bank if it's going to be harder to do to make money from that in the future. Absolutely. And, and so you have a, a, a business model. Every bank does what the, the fancy term in business school, they call it maturity transformation, right? Which means, you know... <laughs> you, Ripping the consumer you, off. You rip off the depositors <laughs> and you give, uh, you know, very expensive loans to, um, to, your, to your clients. What they did instead was, in the case of First Republic, they gave very cheap loans to these very rich people to attract them to come to their, to their bank. And, and while the, the amount of deposits uh, uh, they were paying off were also low, the, 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 the fact that they could fund these very low interest mortgages and very large size mortgages was really at the heart of their business model. Aside from the touchy-feely, you know, you can call your banker anytime stuff. So, so when interest rates rose, what's the first thing a banker knows that you have to match your assets and liabilities? Maturity matching is something that every risk manager learns from the first day. Why didn't they do that? I'm sorry, it wasn't a surprise that the Fed started raising rates. Four, five, maybe even six percent interest rates. Not to have that as part of a contingency plan is a failure of bank management. Fascinating. Well, <laughs> William Lee, thank you very much. Well, Seth, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and I really feel privileged to be in your presence. <laughs> <laughs> The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, he's not the only one saying I told you so to First Republic and to the US supervisors who were asleep at the wheel. Kristalina Gorgieva said more or less the same thing when I spoke to her in the opening session of this Milken conference. So, uh, Kristalina, you have the great and good of American finance, well, at least the great of American finance arrayed in front of you. As head of the IMF, what do you wake up thinking about in the morning that you want them to think about more? The unthinkable. What we have lived through in the last years has been a series of unthinkable events. The pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the rapid jump of interest rates after many, many, many years of staying uh, low, and it is upon all of us to anticipate shocks and be ready to act when they occur, because they will be coming. So if your risk officers 
are only thinking about the predictable and well-known from history risks, they're falling a little short. So give them a little push to think of what is so impossible to think. We're clearly still seeing continued strength on the consumer side of the economy in the US and indeed other places in response to this massive increase in interest rates. Um, but there are building concerns on, of a credit crunch, a sort of slow motion credit crunch. Do you think we're underestimating the impact of those rate rises? Where are you looking? Well, the, uh, first we need to uh, accept that we have handled incredibly significant challenges actually not so badly. Um, in 2020, we were anticipating depression did not happen. Yes, the world economy shrank by 3.1%, but that was far from the, our worst uh, fears. So resilience is for real. And actually, since it is morning and we need to all wake up, I'm going to ask you to give a big round of applause to yourself, because we have lived through these events. Shameless pandering to the audience. But, of course, there is a but here. And the but is um, uh, they have not uh, uh, been um, uh, without consequences. We still have the scarring from the, from the pandemic, uh, the um, geopolitical tensions that have been fueled by uh, Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, are accelerating something that has been already happening more fragmentation in the world economy. That has costs and consequences. Uh, and uh, as you pointed out too, Stephanie, this rapid transition from low interest rates to high interest rates uh, did uh, what should be expected to do. It exposed vulnerabilities in the financial sector. I want to say that this should not be a surprise because it is just not possible to have that jump in interest rates, and to find that everybody has matched the liabilities and assets and uh, looked into, into the interest rates uh, um, in, a, in a responsible manner. What was a surprise, though, was that it happened in the banking sector, not in the non-banking institutions where we feared that may occur. So what should we be thinking? Well, it hasn't happened in the non-banking sector. It doesn't mean that we have a free pass. Uh, it doesn't mean that there wouldn't be more vulnerabilities uh, uh, to come. Uh, and here is our reality. Growth is slowing down, but inflation is not going down as fast as we want it to go. And unfortunately, with more protectionism, we are throwing cold water on what is an anemic growth to begin with. You want me to finish on a positive side? Sure. Well, the positive side is that we have proven to be uh, incredibly resourceful. Uh, and uh, I think it is now time to, um, to do that, to prove it again. Resourceful, but as you pointed out, also kind of a bit stupid in the sense that we were worried about hidden risks in the non-banking sector. And yet, right there in plain sight was potential interest rate risks in a digitized world. When you think about the unthinkable, mm -hmm. well, we certainly haven't seen nominal rates at four, five, six percent, whatever, in a world where money can immediately come out of, billions could come out of deposits instantly.
Um, and banks have made a lot of money over the years from years of rising interest rates and not passing on those short-term interest rate rises. Should that completely change the way we think about financial stability risk? Well, the, uh, let's first um, uh, recognize that uh, since the global financial uh, crisis, a lot has been done to strengthen uh, banking sector, to strengthen our financial system. Uh, banks are better regulated, they're better capitalized, and very important, uh, decision makers, policy makers are very fast. This being said, uh, now, I'm, I'm going to say something that I, I avoid saying. We told you so. The IMF, the IMF wrote... The IMF is always saying we told you so. Well, in this particular case, <laughs> read the books. In the, in the uh, uh, financial sector assessment, we have, we have uh, done for the United States in 21 and 22, we zero in on the problem that blew uh, up uh, the um, uh, bank here in California. It's there. Uh, so there is a bit of, of complacency. And now we saw the, par the price uh, to pay. Uh, we saw that supervision has not been quite up to par. So there are things that can be done to reduce these risks. But you put your, your, your finger on something that um, for all of us is, uh, is novelty, and we are all going to be wrestling uh, with it. It is the speed money can move from one place to another and the role of social media. Uh, again, it goes into the, into the territory of the unthinkable, um, but uh, I am pretty confident we will see uh, quite a lot of new regulatory uh, and um, uh, disclosure thinking around how we deal with this. Kristalina <laughs> Georgieva, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a great start uh, to the week. Thank you. Thank I'll you very back. much, everybody. Well, that's it for this episode of Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, as ever, you can get a lot more economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen with help from Yang Yang and Summer Sadi. The new executive producer of Stephanomics is Molly Smith and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Sage Bauman. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.